quick at about noon. Hope you had an absolutely wonderful weekend. Welcome into the Monday, June 22nd edition of the podcast with Damian Barling presented by Vibe Health Bar. Thank you so much for being here, downloading, subscribing, listening. Thank you so much for being a part of the little community that we are building here on the podcast. We'll talk about Dak Prescott coming up here uh, in just a couple of minutes. We were hoping to have a Major League Baseball deal done. We were hoping to be knowing when the season starts. Uh, that is not the case. As a matter of fact, it is far from the case. Uh, we'll talk about that and what a lost Major League Baseball season would look like coming up here uh, in just a few minutes. And as a matter of fact, as I'm looking at the rundown of this show, it's not a particularly happy episode. I, I don't know really when the last super happy episode we had was, but I'm looking at my rundown and, the, you know, the the, the cases in, in, of COVID-19 spiking across the country, how that's affecting Major League Baseball, how that may affect the National Basketball Association. Uh, we'll get to all of that in just a minute. We're going to start with NASCAR. Uh, yesterday uh, at Talladega Super Speedway, Bubba Wallace, the lone black driver in NASCAR, uh, found a noose in his garage. NASCAR says, late this afternoon, NASCAR was made aware that a noose was found in the garage stall of the 43 team. We are angry and outraged and cannot state strongly enough how seriously we take this heinous act. We have launched an immediate investigation and will do everything we can to identify the person or persons responsible and eliminate them from the sport. As we have stated, unequivocally, there is no place for racism in NASCAR, and this act only strengthens our resolve to make the sport open and welcoming to all. Um, okay, so I, I, I'm, I'm fixated on this line. There's no place for racism in NASCAR. As you know, Bubba Wallace is NASCAR's first full-time black driver since Wendell Scott. Wendell Scott was NASCAR's first full-time black driver, period. That was back in 1971. And for years, as a matter of fact, up until only a couple of days ago, NASCAR pushed that the Confederate flag being a part of everything that they do is it's part of culture and it's part of heritage. And there's nothing... Uh, historical about the Confederate flag that needs it to be waved in 2020. It's divisive. The heritage, it certainly does have a heritage. The heritage it represents is slavery. And, and, and the culture it represents is racism. When the Atlanta Motor Speedway opened up in 1960, the winner of the Atlanta 500 received a ring that had a Confederate flag on it. When Alabama Governor George Wallace, who ran for president as a segregationist in 1968, he attended the Southern 500 at Darlington and NASCAR President Bill France Sr. told the crowd that George Washington founded this country and George Wallace will save it. We, we all know the stories about George Wallace, and if you don't, you should. When... Uh, Senior NASCAR officials and major promoters uh, reported mistreatment of Wendell Scott, who we mentioned just a few minutes ago. Bill France Sr., he was hands-off. He was like, hey, man, this, this has got nothing to do with me. Uh, NASCAR officials reported uh, abuse and uh, towards, towards Scott, and they, uh, they reported that uh, he had been excluded from you know major races and important NASCAR moments. 
France also owned uh, Bill France again, Bill France Sr., the NASCAR president at the time. Uh, he was responsible for helping get drivers uh, the endorsement deals that you see so prominent now on cars. He never helped uh, Wendell Scott with this. And it, it, it's probably worth pointing out that Bill France Sr. is Brian France's grandfather. Brian France is the CEO and chairman of NASCAR right now. The Confederate flag is, in fact, that is a symbol of racism and division and hate. But NASCAR has used it for years, years, for decades, since the inception of its business to build their brand on. They cater to those states, those Confederate states. They cater to the South. That's what NASCAR is. NASCAR, they, they expect because, well, we removed the Confederate flag, therefore we removed racism. Like, this is a day-old thing. This is, this is a very much get-back-in-your-place-boy moment. That's, that's what this is. Bubba Wallace has infiltrated a sport that is predominantly Southern, predominantly white, and whether you like to acknowledge or not, predominantly racist. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're being infiltrated with the, okay, as long as the, as, as, as long as the black guy can drive, like it doesn't matter. If, if, if the black guy can drive, we don't care. We've learned that in sports, if you can run, if you can jump, and I guess in this case, if you can drive, all will be forgiven. But stay in your place. Well, Bubba Wallace didn't stay in his place. Why? He wanted the Confederate flag down. The Confederate flag came down. Hey, wait a minute. This boy is stepping outside of his place. Well, he, um, Excuse me? He's got Black Lives Matter all over his car? Oh, no, we're not going to tolerate that. Put that boy back in his place. That's what this was. Put a noose in his garage. Remind him. He, he performs... He races in Confederate states. Remind him he can't take away our heritage. He can't take away our culture. He can't take away our Confederate flag. Put the boy in his place. Bubba Wallace wrote on Twitter last night, Today's despicable act of racism and hatred leaves me incredibly saddened and serves as a painful reminder of how much further we have to go as a society and how persistent we must be in the fight against racism. Over the last several weeks, I have been overwhelmed by the support from people across the NASCAR industry, including other drivers and team members in the garage. Together, our sport has made a commitment to driving a real change in championing a community that is accepting and welcoming of everyone. Nothing is more important, and we will not be deterred by the reprehensible, reprehensible actions of those who seek to spread hate. As my mother told me today, they are just trying to scare you. This will not break me. I will not give in, nor will I back down. I will continue to proudly stand for what I believe in, end quote. Again, that's Bubba Wallace on Twitter last night. Uh, getting rid of the Confederate flag for a couple of days isn't going isn't, to isn't, isn't erase uh, decades worth of, of racism. It's not going to erase a, a business model that was built on racism. It was built off perpetuating uh, those, whether they're stereotypes or overwhelming feelings of the South. 
It's it's not just because, oh, okay, well, we got rid of the Confederate flag, therefore we have gotten rid of racism in NASCAR. Uh, that's not the case. And I pointed out who, who Bill France Sr. was because of a conversation that we had last week in which I do firmly believe that racism is the most powerful genetic gene that you could pass down. I don't know Brian Francis. I don't know anything about him. But I've read a whole lot about his grandfather over the course of the last couple of months. Hopefully, Brian Francis is a different man than his godfather. It's hard for me to believe, but I hope that he is. Especially when you're raised in the South. Especially when you're operating a business that was built off of exclusion. If you had aspirations of being a NASCAR driver and you saw the way that that Wendell Scott was treated back in 1971, back in the early 70s, why would you ever want to do it? There's a reason that Bubba Wallace is the first to do it since 1971 on a full-time basis. Why would you want to? Why would you want to go into the South? Why would you want to be a part of this? People think this Confederate flag, people have convinced themselves that this Confederate flag is something other than it's not. There are, I can tell you, of broadcasters, of ESPN broadcasters, who have told their bosses, I'm not going to SEC cities. I'm not going to SEC schools. Black broadcasters who have said, I'm not going there to call a game. I absolutely will not step foot onto a campus in the South. Because these flags were... South Carolina, what, it, was, it was three weeks ago, June 3rd. Like think, now, 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 put that in perspective for a second. Think, think about June 3rd for a second. Think about where we were. We were coming off, it was a Wednesday, because that's the day we were celebrating the podcast birthday. A couple of days earlier, uh, if you go back to the weekend, Monday I did that, uh, that, that, that uh, emotionally cleansing show uh, called A Change Gonna Come. Opened up with the Sam Cooke song. If you recall, that weekend is when uh, riots and protests had broken out all over the country. So, so that Wednesday was June 3rd. June 3rd, South Carolina and a number of other Confederate states celebrated Confederate Memorial Day. It's a real thing. Confederate Memorial Day. So just saying that the flag isn't allowed to be waved at NASCAR events doesn't, doesn't mean anything. It's absolutely irrelevant. I mean, it's a step, sure. It's a tiny step, but it's a step. And you, you, I, you don't, you don't, I guess you don't knock progress, right? It's something we've been trying to talk about for weeks. It's been difficult, but you don't knock progress. If it's progress, it's progress. No matter how we got there, it's progress. So NASCAR has gotten rid of the flag. Okay. It's not like they erased racism in the last week. And, it, and I'm not even talking about racism as a whole. I'm talking about racism within the sport of NASCAR. So Bubba Wallace sounds like a smart man. He sounds like a strong man. He's going to keep pushing forward with this, and this is not going to be the last time he has attempted to be put in his place by uh, whether it's a NASCAR fan, uh, whether this is NASCAR media, uh, whether this is a member of another garage or another team. I'm, I'm not really sure, uh, but hopefully, I can't imagine that a garage, I can't imagine that a garage stall for a NASCAR team is not equipped with cameras. I just cannot imagine that. It sure feels like this should be a case that is opened and closed with the definitive result in the very, very near future. Uh, As we move along, I'm sure a number of you saw uh, surging numbers of coronavirus cases in Florida, not only in Florida, 
As a matter of fact, all states that all have a common theme, when you look at southern states, the COVID cases have spiked. And I know the tagline has become, and it's almost a punchline at this point, where we're testing more. So, of course, there's going to be more positive tests. If you're testing more and there's more positive tests, it kind of puts an exclamation point on what Dr. Fauci has been saying for months in that just because the numbers look okay doesn't mean that, that we're getting out of the woods here. We flatten the curve, which was the popular term of, you know, of the last few months. We flatten the curve by staying at home. Well, now we're not staying at home anymore. And the three states with the biggest surges in COVID cases were Florida, Arizona, and Texas. You may recall all three of those states uh, announced that they were going to open up to pro sports all on the same day. And now there's a concern, of course, with surging cases in Florida that perhaps a return to basketball for the NBA in Orlando might not be the best thing. They're scheduled to leave for Orlando on July 7th, so just a couple of weeks from now. Many players, and as a matter of fact, today it's Monday. I think everybody should be back in their home market. I think all of the Sacramento Kings should be back yesterday. I know a number of, of teams have already started uh, COVID cases. When we talked last week, I was certain. I got a little a little bit more clarity on this. I, I thought we were going to get, and I'm not convinced I'm wrong on this yet. I thought we would get hundreds, maybe not hundreds, maybe shy of 200, but in the hundreds. Uh, positive test, positive COVID test is in the roughly 1,600 people associated with the NBA who are going to Florida. Now, there are actually significantly more than 1,600 people because the people who aren't going to Orlando are allowed to be part of the training camp for the next couple of weeks or training camp. It, it's not a training camp, but the, the, the individual workouts and all of that different stuff. What I learned, and I should have known this already, is because some facilities have been opened, anyone who has walked into the facility has already been tested. And the facilities have been open for a while. The NBA facilities have been open for a while. So if you have been working out, we use the Kings as an example, if you've been working out at the practice facility at the Golden One Center, you've already been tested. So if there have been eight players uh, or nine players uh, for the Sacramento Kings, and we'll say the entire coaching staff, They've all already been tested. It's the uh, six, seven, eight other players, however many are coming in. It's those guys that I think they've got a quarantine for 48 hours, and then they come in and, and they get tested. There's a reason that this has been built out so long. There's a reason that there is nothing but individual workouts going on for the next couple of weeks. It's so they can identify these first rounds. It's so they can identify how many people this first test uh, has ha, how many of these first tests are positive that way they can it's all in an effort it's all in an effort to protect this bubble as much as possible florida uh, set a record on saturday with 4049 new cases that broke the previous single day record of new cases which was 3822 that was set the day before so friday and Saturday, Florida saw nearly 8,000 new cases of coronavirus. In all, the state has set records for single-day cases in seven of the past 10 days and is approaching 94,000 infections. Again, this is just in Florida alone. It is a hot spot in this country along with Texas, ring a bell, and Arizona. Aha! 
the National Basketball Association has held uh, town hall meetings with players this week. There, there are concerns that Walt Disney staffers uh, who will not reside on the NBA campus, like housekeepers, uh, they will not be subject to coronavirus testing. And uh, one mitigating factor that was cited is that many of the new cases are in areas other than Orlando. I, so I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Where the Miami Heat are in Miami-Dade County, uh, they have 25,000 cases just in that one county alone. So there is, I, I, don't, think, I don't think any of this in particular, and Adam Silver says we're moving forward, we're confident in what we're doing, uh, we, we believe that the setup that we have is going to work, we're, we're, we're all about it. It's like, okay, okay, good. And I don't, there's, I don't think the concern is the state of Florida. I think the real concern with the NBA is going to be what these next couple of days look like as guys come back, as they come off of their 48-hour quarantine, and as they have to get their first round, for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, it is their first round of coronavirus testing. And I think by, you know, everybody had to be back by yesterday. If you were flying in, you did the 48 hours. So I would think by Wednesday, we would have a number of how many people associated with the NBA, not just players. This includes coaches. This includes physical trainers. Uh, this includes strength and conditioning coaches. This includes everybody who is allowed to walk into a facility uh, over the course of the next few weeks before those teams get on those charter flights and head to Orlando. We'll get a, 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 a grasp of how many positive tests that they are. And I don't know if there's a number where the NBA goes, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off. But I feel like the number that we're going to get this week is going to be large. I feel like it's going to be jarring. Like, what did we see? 23 Clemson football players tested positive? Nine, uh, eight or nine, uh, was it Was it the Phillies? Like, Major League Baseball camps have been shut down. And we'll, and, and we'll get to that because they're in Florida, for God's sakes. They're, Jesus, they're in Florida, Arizona, and Texas. For goodness sakes. We'll get to baseball in just a minute. But I think we're going to see a jarring number here. And I don't know if it's a number that's going to make Adam Silver think. I don't know if it's a number that's going to make. Because if the NBA shuts down, this is my opinion. If the NBA shuts down everything, there, there's no baseball season. Uh, the first one, I, and I think if, 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 if the NBA shuts down, I don't think there's college either. I don't think there's college football, and I don't think there's college basketball. The only one that's going to continue to push forward is going to be the NFL. And the NFL is working through some difficulties of their own, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. There's, there's a, there's a, a, I don't want to call it a division, but there's a, you know, the NBA has to decide who's essentially, you know, to, to use the term that has become uh, so familiar with, with people in 2020, they've got to determine who the essential personnel are because the essential personnel are the ones that are going to, to Orlando. And so there's there's going to be some hurt feelings. I mean, whether you're, uh, you know, a, a, a third or fourth assistant coach, or whether you're, you know, the second or third media person, or whatever, like there's going to be feelings that are going to be hurt because it, a, a team can only take so many people. I think the number that they can take is either I think it's thirty five or thirty six. I think I've read both online. I don't. I've, I've even asked. I didn't know. I don't know what the real number is. But it's, it's somewhere between 35, and I don't think it's any higher than 37. The two numbers that I kept seeing was 
a team can bring 35 players. A team can bring 36 players. Uh, sorry, not 35 players. 35 people. 35 people associated with the organization can go. And if that means 17 players and then 18 coaches, personnel, there are, as, as we outlined uh, in the big, the, the, the big Shams uh, document dump last week on Twitter, there are certain positions that have to go that are mandated by the league. The physical trainer is mandated by the league. The strength and conditioning coach is mandated by the league. Uh, I think there's a, a, a digital uh, a digital media representative, like someone to tweet, do videos, do things like that. They're mandated by the league because you know, media is going to be kept to, to, to a minimum, and that digital person can relay all sorts of content to, in our case, Kings fans. So those, those positions are regulated. Everything else after that, like the number of coaches, like a lot of teams – uh, oh, I can't remember what team we were just talking about. One team has like 11 coaches. Some teams only have seven or eight. You know, the amount of coaches that you have, it, it, it's, it's discretion. It's how big is, 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 is the coach, coach one of staff? I don't know that you can bring 11 assistant coaches. Uh, maybe you can. But once you get to 11 coaches and 17 players, of course, you don't have to take 17 players. You could take 15. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of establishing ranks here in the NBA, and, and the NFL is going to have to do the th- same thing. Uh, we'll get to that. One more COVID-related story, not particularly sports-related. If you're, if you're a Twitter follower or a Twitter user, I should say, if you're on that platform, you probably saw, and I'm sure it was on other places as well, so forgive me for that, but D.L. Hughley, for reasons known absolutely only to D.L. Hughley, he was doing a comedy show in Nashville. He was doing a comedy show at Zany's, and he started to, he was sitting on this chair, and he, he like started to slur his speech, and he was kind of rocking back and forth, and... um. I, I, I don't know if it was a manager or security guard or who it was. Somebody noticed something was wrong and they were kind of, you could see them off camp. They kind of went over to position them themselves, you know, on the side of the stage. And as he started rocking, the, the guy jumps on stage and kind of grabs DL as he starts to, starts to fall to the ground. He just kind of lays him down. And, and, and there was reports early that, you know, DL was suffering from exhaustion and he was just tired after a weeks of travel. And turns out it was, Hey, it's uh, me, D.L. Hughley. Uh, um, I'm just being released from St. Thomas uh, Hospital in Nashville. I want to thank them for taking such good care of me. I want to thank you all for your well wishes and your prayers. And you comedians who call and said such evil things when I was scared to death, thank you too. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your prayers and well wishes. Um, when I came, I was being treated uh, for extreme exhaustion and... Um, uh, dehydration, which I, I was very dehydrated, but it turns out they ran a battery of tests, and I also tested positive for COVID-19, which blew me away. Um, I was what they call asymptomatic. I didn't have uh, any symptoms that you know other classic symptoms. I didn't have flu-like symptoms. I didn't so there have you have it. A shortness. COVID of is trying to take out one of the kings of comedy. Come on, man! Why was he doing a comedy show? What was that? Was that for what? I don't get it, man. Like I, I, I don't understand. I, I've openly admitted. At least I think I have. My life has minimally been impacted. 
by COVID-19. Sure, you know, wearing a mask out in public and, and you know, not going to dinner or whatever every couple of weeks. You know, I'm, I'm more of a cook at the house type of person anyways. But in terms of like my work, like, you know, I joke all the time. My, my home studio here in Natomas, California, I work in the front room of my house. I have for over a year now, as we've established. My, my life wasn't like super impacted by this. But I'm I'm still fascinated at the at the thought like y'all we just if 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 I told you it was life or death for you to wear a mask, better yet, if I told you like hey 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 hey, hey it's cool maybe it's not your your life and death and and maybe if it is you don't care maybe you're you're of that state hey if I get sick I get sick, but what about the life or death of people around you like what about the life or death of of, of people who are older than you or what about the Life or death of people who have weaker immune systems or who have other health issues going on. Like, that doesn't shake you at all. It doesn't, like, it's, it's, like, I, I am under the belief right now, all of us, e- even, you know, people who are careful, we're all going to get it. We just might not know it. But we're all going to get it, and are we going to pass it down to somebody else? And what, uh, I don't know, we don't know what the right, way to phrase this is what level of it are we going to get like how severe is it going to be I think we're all going to probably have to deal with it at some point I mean we've probably got what are we in June we might have I mean allegedly we may have a vaccine in 2021 and early 2021 but are we looking at another year of this someone's <laughs> I was talking to somebody yesterday could you imagine like what if, if this goes into New Year's which all indications are it is does New York have to put out a press release in October that says, yeah, no, do not show up here New Year's Eve. There will be no ball drop. There will be New Year, no New Year's celebration. We are not doing any of that. Do not bring your nasty ass down here to Times Square and to destroy our city even further. Because our city has just been ravaged with this disease. So no, absolutely no ball drop. Do, do, do stores have to say, like, yeah, Black Friday is only happening online, dude. Like, you can log. You know what? You can grab your computer while you're eating turkey on Thanksgiving, and we'll open up our online sales. That's pretty much Black Friday doesn't really exist anymore. It's like it's like a week long of sale. Like, it begins a, a week or two before Thanksgiving even gets here, and now you've got stores that, that, that they don't open on Friday anymore. They open up on Thursday. You got online deals. You got early bird specials that go up at 9 p.m. on Thanksgiving when you're all fat and full of, you know, pie and wine or whatever. They they need to do that again. Like, hey, we're not even open the day after Thanksgiving. Like, we are closing our stores. You can get anything you want from from our online location. These are these are what's trigger treating going to look like? Can you? Do, I mean, I mean, you already. A lot of kids already have a mask on, so I guess that's a start. But you can't. Yeah, I mean that's a kid. It's it's essentially a kids' event. Like you can't minimize the impact of of this coronavirus and act like it doesn't matter if you wear a mask or take precautions when you got all of these kids out there. You don't want kids to lose. And at that point, like, how do you take your kids to a stranger's house and go, "Hey, give me some candy." Put your nasty hands that I don't know that you've washed or if you've sneezed into, and then hand me some candy. 2020 is a bitch, man. Major League Baseball players have reversed course again, deciding not to vote on uh, Sunday on the league's 60-game proposal. Uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred made some tweaks to the offer. If you recall, Major League Baseball Players Association was 
going to present a, a, a 70 game proposal. As, as a matter of fact, I, let me rephrase that. Major League Baseball Players Association did present a 70 game proposal. But uh, I, I guess uh, Rob Manfred and Tony Clark got together and offered um, a couple of things uh, that that tweaked the 60 game spe- schedule that that was enough to get Tony Clark's attention and take it back to the Players Association. It included um, uh, Rob Manfred sent a letter to to Tony Clark uh, offering to cancel expanded playoffs in the universal designated hitter for 2021 uh, if the full season isn't played in 2020. And so uh, on Saturday, uh, the board got together and they decided to delay the vote. Now, this has nothing to do with the 60 games. It has nothing to do with the designated hitter. It has nothing to do with uh, expanded playoffs. It has to do with the fact that they haven't laid out how COVID-19 testing is going to work. There are outbreaks at uh, training facilities and in uh, major league cities, as we you know laid out a few minutes ago with Texas and Florida and Arizona. And obviously those are uh, training camp hotspots, uh, no pun intended, but those, those are, so all training camps, major league baseball training camps had to be closed, um, at least temporarily. So while we were waiting for these two entities to, you know, lay out a return to the baseball season, we now are waiting for them to lay out what the training or what the testing protocols will be for COVID-19 and how these athletes can safely, uh, begin the major league baseball season and safely finish the major league baseball season. This is a, a, a multi-month commitment. I mean, if they do, you know, if they, they, if they push this to, to keep a, you know, mid to late October um, world series. And remember Dr. Fauci said last week, like if I was baseball, like they should try to get the season done as early as possible. I know they're trying to figure out a way to start the season, but they also need to try to figure out a way to get it done as soon as possible. They're looking at a similar, and and there's no talk of quarantine, there's no talk of bubble, there's no talk about isolation, but they're looking at a similar commitment where where it's going to be an all-out sprint uh, to the end of their season that Major League, uh, that that uh, the NBA is looking at. Baseball is looking at the same sprint that the NBA is looking at in that if they start now, they could finish in October. That's the same thing that the NBA is doing. Like the, 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 the baseball season will start and end, and it'll coincide with the NBA restart and the NBA finish. But they've got to get these testing protocols laid out first. I mean, they can't even open training facilities anymore. And, you know, a, you know, a, a lost season has never happened like an entire major league baseball season um, has not been lost since the national league was established in 1876. That's 144 straight years of having major league baseball in some capacity. The only time that the NHL, NFL or NBA had an entire season wiped out was the 2004-2005 NHL season. That entire season was lost because of a labor dispute. The NBA has been in existence since 1946, the NFL 1920, NHL 1917. The shortest season in Major League Baseball history was back in 1877. Six National National League teams averaged 60 games. They played between... 
58 and 61 games. And this is where, you know, it's, it's, it's taking, the conversation is taking a turn because of the COVID spikes in, in, in various cities, particularly in, in so-called training camp cities. But there's also been a lot of, you know, disgust, as we have outlined here on a number of occasions, a lot of just kind of shaking your head at Major League Baseball's approach to these negotiations. And there's a lot of upset baseball fans. And, you know, it's, it's bringing up conversations of 1994. The 1994 strike prior to 1994, Major League Baseball averaged 31,256 fans per game that year. It was its highest all time. That dropped 20% in 1995. That's the largest year-over-year decrease since World War I. All but three teams in the league saw their average attendance decline from 1994 to 1995. Now, eventually, you know, it would it would creep back up, uh, just barely cracking the thirty thousand mark in two thousand four. That was nine years later. Baseball cannot afford nine more years of trying to fix this, and I'm not sure that this is something they're going to be fixed. Because think of the year, think of your attention span in 1994 versus now. Think about your attention span from 1994 to 2004. And how that gradually built back up. Like, all right, let's let's go to a ball game. Like, all right, let's pay more attention to what's going on in Major League Baseball. Now, there's a million things to distract us. Literally a million things to distract us. We got a million things to distract us just at our fingertips on our phone. If baseball suffers an entire lost season... There, there are people who are going to recognize, and, and, and the MLB will do its best to spin it this way, that perhaps COVID-19 played a major factor in this, this season not returning. But had they gotten further along in these negotiations two months ago when they were supposed to, when the states opened up for the first time, whether the decision to open up is right or wrong, Major League Baseball would have been right along with them. The season would already be happening. And so if the season had already started and you're a month into the season or you're a few weeks into the season and all these COVID cases spike and you put everything on hold and you say, wait a minute, we've got a problem. We've got to figure out how to protect our players. We've got to figure out how to protect our personnel. We've got to figure out how to protect their families. Then, then it's different. Then you can spin the narrative. We've had to shut this down because of COVID-19. But right now, I don't know that Major League Baseball can spin that. I think they're going to work overtime to make sure that they can. Or, to, or I should say, I think they're going to work overtime to make sure that they do. Because I think they want to steer away from, okay, if we have to shut this season down, we cannot allow our fans to think it's because of a, a labor dispute. Despite the fact we have been following very closely this labor dispute. I mentioned uh, earlier the NFL tiers. By the way, uh, before we get into the NFL, before we get into Dak Prescott, thank you for everybody who checked out the, uh, the Juneteenth episode of Be Conscious with Tyler Merritt. I'm so happy you got an opportunity to hear that. If you dug what you heard, uh, there's lots more episodes of Be Conscious over on patreon.com slash Damian Barling. We drop a new episode of Be Conscious every single week. I hope you'll go give that a listen. We also got a wrestling podcast called Relive. Uh, we drop those episodes. They drop every Wednesday on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, we drop them early over there on uh, patreon.com slash Damian Barling. So if you want some extra content, uh, as the King season gets underway, hopefully, 
Uh, here in a couple of weeks, we'll have extra Kings content there over on Patreon.com uh, as well. And if you just want to look for a way to support the show, uh, just a little donation each month to help us keep things moving, uh, we've got that tier set up for you as well. It's a minimal investment uh, at $4 or something like that per month. But we appreciate everybody who jumped on over the weekend. And, and most of all, I appreciate everybody who checked out that free episode of Be Conscious right here on the main feed. Head over to Patreon.com slash Damien Barling. So these NFL tiers, this is something that the NFL is having to deal with, and it reminded me of, of, of the NBA, where the NBA has to you know, decide like who is essential personnel, uh, who can we take with us to the bubble, who do we not have to take with us to the bubble. This is going to happen within Major League Baseball to a slightly, I'm sorry, this is going to happen within the NFL to a slightly different degree because the NFL has spent several days trying to figure out like how to separate organizations into tiers. And the idea is they're working with a uh, infectious disease, emergency responders, you know, to kind of put together, okay, who is, who is the essential person at like the top tier? So like tier one, uh, the way that the NFL has, has laid this out, tier one will consist of players, coaches, trainers, physicians, and necessarily uh, necessary personnel who must have direct access to players. So that is the top tier. That is essentially the bubble in the NFL. Those are the positions that are going to be most protected and have the most limited access. Right? You're not going to be able to get to those players and to those coaches and to that personnel that the way that you used to. Tier two general managers, football operations, employees, other assistant coaches, video personnel, security. Uh, again, they're essential personnel. They'll need to be in close proximity to the players, but don't necessarily need to be in the restricted area of, say, the locker room. Uh, only individuals, this is, again, according to the NFL, only individuals assigned to Tiers 1 and Tier 2 will be permitted access to restricted areas. Thus the locker room now this is where this is where these conversations are going to get dicey because now you've got a tier three right and you've already mandated okay the people in this tier you're not going to have access you're not going to have the same type of access to the same areas uh into the same people that you used to this is you know certain operational personnel this is in-house media this is broadcast personnel field manager uh you know uh, different, you know, stadium people, stuff like that. You're <laughs> right now. This is this is very much happening in the NFL right now. You've got personnel. You've got team personnel j jockeying for position. They're tr they're trying to get up into the tier one or tier two. They're trying to be in that that you know tier one again. It's the most restricted bubble. Tier two. Got to be careful, but you can you can be in the restricted areas. Maybe 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 not in super close proximity to that tier one bubble, but you can be in the areas if you got to converse with them and do certain things. You can. Tier three, tier three, you have been deemed non-essential. Those are going to be some tough conversations to have uh, with NFL employees, and it's like the whole. You know, I think about how sports media and, and you know, working within sports has changed so much this year. And how much of it is going to be permanently changed? Like, who, you know, who knows? We, we, we don't know what the future looks like. We only know what our present looks like. 
hell, some of us remember the good old days when we used to be able to go to a game and high five our favorite player or something like that. Like it feels like those days are long gone. But there's gonna be there's gonna be infighting within these NFL teams and the NFL they're 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 full on ready for training camp next year or next month excuse me. They got the hard knocks cameras ready and all that stuff. We even hear Dak Prescott is set to sign his thirty one point four million dollar exclusive franchise tender today. Wow. Okay. Now, like, what are what are what are the benefits for this? Like, why 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 would why would Dakota sign this today? Well, why not? What happens is if 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 Dak doesn't sign it, and this is and this is I think is 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 I think it's great thinking for for multiple reasons by Dak and his and his agent. If Dak signs this, it means he's committed to going. To, it means he's under contract. Basically, it means he's committed to going to training camp. He's committed to the preseason. He's committed to everything he would be if he had signed a, a four or five year deal. Whereas a, a lot of the reasons players don't sign these franchise tenders is so they remain, you know, they're not under contract and they can skip training camp. They can skip preseason games and they can just show up when the regular season starts. Well, Dak needs to be around uh, Mike McCarthy. Dak needs to be around the coaching staff. He needs to be around his players. Plus it's $31.4 million. And this, to me, this is the Kirk Cousins scenario where it's like, hey, okay, I'm going to sign it. Cool. You don't want to pay me long term? It's okay because if I play well enough and I fully expect to play well enough, this same contract tender, this same franchise tender that you put me on this year is going to be worth $37 million next year. And I guarantee you that you don't have a set of balls between Jerry and Stephen Jones to tag me a third year and pay me well in excess of $40 million. So at that point, if Dak is under the, oh, I've got to prove it, okay, I'll prove it. I'll prove it to the tune of $31.4 million. That's a hell of a guarantee to have. I, I know he wanted the 31 plus uh, guaranteed over the course of the next four years, you know, per per year, 100, I'm, I'm sure we were talking 120 total or somewhere around there. Of I mean, I'm talking of real money, by the way. I'm not talking of fictitious football money. I'm talking about real money. But you're guaranteed 31.4, and if they don't sign you to a long-term contract, which it seems like it would just be absolutely insane if that, at this point if you play well enough to be in the discussion for a long-term contract, if, if, you, if, if they don't sign you, they've got $37 million that they'll have to pay you if they want to keep you around next year. That's a two-year deal worth $68 million. <laughs> That's not bad guaranteed. I mean, that, this is the NFL. That is, that is as good of a guarantee as you'll get. Another plus is they could still renegotiate the contract. They could, they could still come to an agreement on a long-term assistance. They have until July 15th. They have until July 15th to, to get this deal done. But Dak says, all right, cool. Like, let's, let's just, I'll just sign it now. Let's take all of the conversation out of it. Uh, you guys aren't moving forward. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Kind of makes him look like the good guy, right? Okay. You don't want to pay me? That's fine. I'll show you I can earn it again. 
Meanwhile, his agents working behind the scenes to try to get something done for him. But you've got to look at this and you got to go, okay, why would you not? Because we often look at the numbers like let's let's just use the $31 million and the $37 million. Let's just say this was a contract that was signed for two years and not necessarily a franchise tender. We look at this and say, well, Dak Prescott, even it out, $35 million a year. He signed a two-year $70 million deal. Is he worth that? Like, wow. And then you start comparing, well, that's more than Aaron Rodgers, and that's more than, you know, Aaron Rodgers has won a Super Bowl, and it's more than Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson's won a Super Bowl. And you start looking at, well, like, who does he make the same money as, and who does he make more than? And when you do that, you, you, you try to convince yourself, okay, well, Dak's not, Dak's not worth that. But then you realize, okay, well, what's the Cowboys' alternative? You're as valuable as the market allows you to be. Because if, 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 if Dak isn't worth $35 million per year to the Dallas Cowboys, okay, what is that position worth then to the Dallas Cowboys? What is the quarterback position worth? Is it worth Andy Dalton? Like, do you believe, because these are the questions that you have to ask yourself if you're in the front office. Do you believe that you can accomplish the same things you would with $35 million per year Dak Prescott versus, you know, uh, a million bucks and some change or a couple of million bucks and some change with Andy Dalton? Do you believe that you can have Andy Dalton go out there and you can go sign Colin Kaepernick as your third string quarterback or your backup quarterback? Or you can go sign Cam Newton to be your quarterback, or you can go sign anybody. You're just not going to pay Dak Prescott $35 million. What you have to decide is what that position is worth to your ability to win the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes, perfect example. We know what Patrick Mahomes' ability is and what his contributions are to a Super Bowl team because we saw it. Therefore, we are going to see Patrick Mahomes sign the richest contract we have ever seen in the NFL Patrick Mahomes might be the first quarterback, the first marquee quarterback to sign the richest deal in NFL history, and it doesn't get surpassed the very next deal. Aaron Rodgers did it. Ben Roethlisberger did it. Like, quarterback after quarterback did it, but they were only the top-paid quarterback for a short, short period of time. Patrick Mahomes might be the first quarterback to sign that extension, to set that new bar for a quarterback contract, and then the next one that comes up is like, uh-uh. Yeah, dude, you're not Patrick Mahomes. That's what I tell every agent who tried to sat and sit in front of me if my if I ran an NFL team. Even you know, I think Dak is I think Dak is valuable to the Dallas Cowboys, but I'd also sit in front of him and say, "Fam, you are not Patrick Mahomes." What Patrick Mahomes means to the Kansas City Chiefs is not what Dak Prescott means to the Dallas Cowboys. Now you are important to our organization, and we want to come to a compromise. We want to pay you very well. We're just not going to pay you what Patrick Mahomes makes. Those are going to be difficult conversations for agents and owners to have, but I think that that Patrick Mahomes might be alone in that category because I don't think that that's ever happened before. Every single time. I mean, Derek Carr for a minute was the highest paid quarterback in NFL history. It, it, literally for a minute. And then it became somebody else. And I don't know what it is with Dak. I, 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 don't, I don't know what it is that the Cowboys don't love. You know, there's... I, I know that his clutch or lack thereof performance tend to to to, to get people i i know that there's uh his ability to uh to play against like elite teams like the cowboys were 1 and 6 against playoff teams last year 1 and 6 and Dak had as many picks as touchdowns 
in those seven games. And those numbers were way down from when he was going against bad teams. When he was going against bad teams, when he was going against uh, non-playoff teams, the Cowboys were 7-2. and two. Full context here, 1-6 and six against playoff teams. Eight touchdowns, eight interceptions, QBR of 55. Those were non-playoff, or those were playoff teams, excuse me. Those were teams that made the playoffs. Non-playoff teams, Cowboys were 7-2. and two. Touchdown interception ratio, 22 to 3, with a total QBR of 8. Of 80, excuse me. Total QBR of 80. So his, his, his non-playoff QBR, he was going against teams that stunk to teams that didn't stink, to teams that made the playoffs. His QBR dropped from 80 to 55. I, I don't know if that, again, like, help me here. Is that more about the Dallas Cowboys? Is that more about the Dallas Cowboys personnel? Is that about Dak Prescott? It appears that the Cowboys think it's about Dak Prescott. Because 7-2, and 22-3 interception ratio against non-playoff teams, you'd probably run with that until you look at the number on the other side. And you see that 1-6. and six. Would you want... What you know? What what quarterback would you want with the game on the line? Well, not Dak. Dak had zero game-winning drives. Dak Prescott had the same number of game-winning drives as you and I. As a matter of fact, the only other quarterback in the last fifteen seasons with thirty touchdown passes and zero game-winning drives. You are gonna you're you're absolutely gonna laugh at, out loud at this. 30 touchdown passes, zero game-winning drives. One quarterback has done it within the last 15 years, and the similarities between these two are just astonishing right now, so I'm about to say this. I'm pausing because I want everybody to think for a minute, figure out who it is, and then blurt it out loud. On a show of hands, 916-888-5898. Who said Kirk Cousins? Kirk Cousins in 2018. That's when Minnesota's was eight, seven, and one. Kirk Cousins, one and six versus playoff teams. It's 2018 Kirk Cousins, 2019 Dak Prescott, eight and eight, one and six versus playoff teams. Remember the rap on Kirk Cousins in 2018? That appears to be the rap on Rain Dakota Prescott. Right now, and I don't know. I mean, game-winning drives—that's a flaw. You know, people use that line all the time about. I, I mean, people said Tony Romo wasn't clutch. Like Tony Romo can't perform in the clutch, but but for like four seasons, Tony Romo led the league in game-winning drives. Like, and I think that was considered any drive that started with less than, I think it was three and a half minutes left, or or, or less than four minutes left. Go-ahead game-winning drive, Dak Prescott. Can't do it. Okay. Tony Romo could do it, but people still said that he wasn't clutch. It's because he didn't do it in the playoffs. He threw that interception against the New York Giants. He fumbled that kick against Seattle. Like, he, he lost in marquee moments. He failed to perform in marquee moments, whether, you know, week six... Sunday afternoon, nobody cared. It was a fun highlight, but nobody nobody chalked that up to, hey, Tony Romo's clutch. 
Dallas had nine potential game-tying or go-ahead fourth-quarter drives across four games against playoff teams last year. They lost all of them, and the Cowboys just scored six points on those drives. They had the most such drives without a touchdown of any team last year, and the last team to have more drives without a touchdown was the 0-16 Browns in 2017 when the Browns had 12 opportunities for game-tying or go-ahead fourth-quarter drives. The Cowboys had nine. Does all of that play a factor into where Dak Prescott's negotiations are right now? I don't know. It, it very well may. A uh, couple of final notes here. The Undertaker Last Ride series finished up on Sunday, and it didn't exactly finish with The Undertaker retiring. It actually finished the same way every episode of The Last Ride did with him. Oh, I don't know. Like, we'll... I mean, like, I'm perfectly content. Like, it was making the rounds yesterday on social media, like, that, that The Undertaker had retired, and uh, he says he has no desire to, to, to wrestle again after his match with AJ Styles. Having no desire to wrestle is not the same thing as actually retiring. Of course he has no desire to wrestle. Why would he? There's no fans. There's no pop to come back to. There's no 80,000, 90,000 people at the Los Angeles, uh, what is it, SoFi Stadium, you know, next year, and... In, in Southern California, like none of that is there for him. Of course, it's it's easy right now in June when it feels like the world has come to an, a complete end uh, to not return. But he still stopped short of saying, that was it. It was perfect. I'm out. And look, he, he could do it. He could do this however he wants to. And, and this, uh, this fifth episode was definitely the best produced episode in the sense of you saw The Undertaker like poking fun at himself. In the sense that he was like, well, what happens if I come back and the match is bad and then I just get stuck in this cycle? And he's, you know, he's like, here comes the Undertaker, you know, down the aisle on a walker. You know, like, you know, he recognized what was happening. But he also, you know, he said, and this was a focal point of the show back on the, the Stone Cold Steve Austin you know, Broken Skull show that they do on the network is that he's, he's going to write his own story. He wants to do it his own way. But I, I also believe that he wants that moment in the ring. He wants that one more moment in the ring. He wants that one more moment to be in front of fans. And as much as he loved the production and the, the, as much as he loved the story that that Boneyard match told, it's not the same as, you know, hitting the tombstone, crossing the arms, flicking your hair back, rolling your eyes back, and the crowd goes crazy one last time. It's not the same. He can have those moments without having a match, as we've seen, like the way the AJ Styles program started. He just walked out, he choke slammed AJ Styles, and that was it. Match was over, but that's how the program started. But we also know that that's not creatively satisfying to him, as we learned from the John Cena thing. I thought overall, in a series that I was hoping to, I don't think the WWE has put together a documentary series yet that is rewatchable. I thought the Monday Night Wars was laughable. It's so horrible and so like slanted and such like there are people who believe that what the WWE says about the Monday Night Wars is actually real, that it's actually history, that that that's actually how it took place. Whereas some of us who live through it 
you know, in 1996, and maybe we read some of Meltzer's Observers, or we follow different podcasts, or you know, we've read different books. We know that that's what the W the story that the WWE tells is mostly garbage. There are elements of truth to it, but overall, most of it is garbage. You just did a five-hour, five-part series on The Undertaker, but you chose to focus primarily on his non-commitment to retirement. I understand the documentary was called The Last Ride, but if you're going to spend this much time talking about The Undertaker, it seems like there's so much more that you could have done. Like Bruce Pritchard often talks about, how Undertaker wants to kill him because of some of his past WrestleMania opponents. Like, how come you didn't dive into, you know, the Undertaker constantly getting stuck with guys like Giant Gonzalez and Great Khali and, you know, some of these other, you know, giant stiffs who can't move? You could have told a tremendous story. Like, imagine the story they could have told if they, you know, devoted an episode to how the Kane character came to be. Or how when The Undertaker debuted, there have always been, there have been rumors throughout the years that The Undertaker was actually going to be the superstar that popped out of the egg that, that wound up being the gobbledygooker. There, there have always been rumors that that was going to be The Undertaker. Not, not The Undertaker character, but, but Mark Calloway, the, the person. He was going to be something that like popped out of an egg. How come there was no conversation about how you aligned with Paul Bearer after debuting with Brother Love and... Vince McMahon found out that Paul Bearer was actually a mortician and went nuts and thought this was the greatest thing ever. I feel like there's so many stories for a guy who has been in the WWE since 1990. Ah, there's just so much that you could have, so much you could have done here. And I don't know, maybe there's another Undertaker documentary on the way. Like, I, I just felt like you could have done more than, I didn't, I didn't need an episode on that, you know, that, Cluster F that was that was Kane and, and Undertaker versus DX at uh you know at one of the money grab shows. There's much more I would have rather have seen. Some of the behind the scenes clips that they've showed of the Undertaker and Paul Bearer working through their different vignettes. That's, that's great. But I don't know. Overall, I think the last ride was a miss. I thought the last episode was good. I think there were moments in the show where it was good, but overall. Just the constant, oh, I think this is it. No, this is not it. No, I'm done. No, I'm not done. It, it just kind of got, it just got to be too much for me. Like this, I, I don't even know what I'm watching for. I thought, okay, this will all make sense if he retires at the end. And really, he didn't. He didn't commit to retiring. He just committed to, uh, we'll see what happens. Which is what he is committed to after every single match that he's done for like the last five years. Meltzer has observers, you know, from like, I think like 1997, 1998, where people within the WWE, not Meltzer, you know, speculating, but people within the WWE telling him, you know, the Undertaker's days are, are, are coming to an end. He is really, really beat up. He's exhausted. This was like eight years into his run. Remember, he started in 1990 with the under, as the Undertaker, and he was, you know, he had been in wrestling for you know significantly longer, but he had started as the Undertaker in 1990, and he'd been carrying the ball for the WWE for a long time. You could, you didn't do an episode. You, you pretty much glossed over the fact that the Undertaker beat Hulk Hogan in 1991. He beat Hulk Hogan when it still mattered that you beat Hulk Hogan. I don't know. I guess it's easy to armchair quarterback. I would have done it a little bit differently, but. 
I'm not a producer on the WWE Network. I just put out podcasts, and I'm so thankful that you listened here today. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash Barling if you want more podcasts. We'll have a weekly wrestling podcast coming up. Uh, lots of things to touch on there, including the return of Bray Wyatt. Nope, not the Firefly Funhouse Bray Wyatt. Nope, not the Fiend Bray Wyatt, but the Wyatt family Bray, Bray Wyatt. I think we're looking at a three faces of Foley thing here. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll get to that on the weekly wrestling edition of the podcast that is exclusive to Patreon users as well. We've got a new episode of We Live uh, dropping on Wednesday that focuses on Daniel Bryan's journey to WrestleMania 30. I'm very anxious uh, for you to hear that one. I've started work on episode number six. I'm super excited for this one as well. This is a fun, very creatively satisfying series. This Relive series is a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy uh, listening to it. As we get out, we're going to sign off. We're going to say tune in tomorrow. I appreciate you so much for being here. Uh, But we're going to leave you with words from uh, Russell Wilson, Sue Bird, and Megan Rapinoe. Jackie, Bill, Ali, Serena. Jackie rifles a shot into left field. Jackie Robinson went from playing in the Negro Leagues to becoming the first black man to play in Major League Baseball at a time when segregation was still legal. Bill Russell, 11 time NBA champion, first black NBA head coach while playing, awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom because of his accomplishments in the Civil Rights Movement. I shook up the world. Now, what are, what are they going to say about that now, huh? Muhammad Ali, the GOAT went against the establishment and stood for the freedom movement when it was the unpopular position to take. The day I stop fighting for equality will be the day I'm in my grave. Serena Williams has spent her life dominating the court, but it's her courage to speak against inequality and racism that cemented her as a voice of her generation. But what if we didn't know their names? What if they were never part of the conversation? And there's also this conversation. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Those were George Floyd's last words. Ahmaud Arbery was just going out for a run and never came home. Breonna Taylor was at home in bed. Our country's work is not anywhere close to done. We need justice. We need true leadership. We need a change. And we need it now. I look at my children and I pray for a better future, a world where the color of their brown skin doesn't stop them from their calling, from their purpose, from their destiny. I pray for a world where I don't have to fear for my children due to systemic racism from hundreds of years of oppression. The only thing that must die is racism. Black lives matter. So where do we go from here? As millions of people of all colors protest, I see a world of hurt, pain, and despair but I also see a new generation, a generation that is calling out in desperate need for lasting change. To my white teammates and friends, we need you to lead too. Don't just listen, help. It's important that we keep this dialogue going and this energy alive, because for centuries, there have been fights for justice and equality in this country, led by black people. This movement is no different, but as white people, This is the breaking point. This time, we've got to have their backs. Trust us, we know that sports are important. It's why we're gathered here tonight. But do black lives matter to you when they're not throwing touchdowns, grabbing rebounds, serving aces? If that was uncomfortable to hear, good. 
I used to shy away from moments like this because it's convenient to be quiet, to be thought of as safe and polite. Colin Kaepernick never shied away. He knew that discomfort was essential to liberation and that fighting the oppression against black people is bigger than sports. So will it be uncomfortable? Yes. In speaking up, will we make mistakes? Yes. That cannot stop us from trying. And not just for a few days or a few IG posts. This is our moment to prove that we know a better world is one where black lives are valued. No one deserves white privilege. It's not something we earned. Believing black people, and not just in instances of police brutality, and then finding your lane to get educated and amplify is the first step. It's great that sports are back, but George Floyd won't be there to see them. Breonna Taylor won't be there to see them. Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Rayshard Brooks, Dominique Remy Fels, Leilene Polanco, Toyin Salou won't be there to see them. We can't let sports try and take us back to the way things were. Every athlete at every level has the power to show what it looks like to fight for what is right. Moments in sports like the 1968 Olympics with Tommy Smith and John Carlos fists in the air to Colin kneeling, they've helped ignite the conversation around racism. Our return must be part of the fight for justice. Our return can't just return to business as usual. Our return is our turn to stand up for what's right. It's a return we all need because sports inspire. Sports give us hope. Sports make us feel. Sports bring us together. They remind us what it's like to be on the same team. They bring out our best. Tonight, we honor our best. And as teammates, we welcome everyone. This is the 2020 ESPYs.